Welcome into Real Pod Wednesdays. Dan Hope joined by Griffin Strom here as we get toward the end of February, get close to March, which means really in the thick of things with basketball season. And we'll talk uh, some about basketball on this week's show as we're still a couple weeks away from the start of spring football. I think we did get our prediction right last week, Griffin. We both said that we thought Ohio State would split the home games against Iowa and Indiana with a loss to Iowa and a win over Indiana. So I don't know if we saw the games playing out quite the way they did, but at least we were partially right. We're killing it right now, Dan. I check in at the end of this episode and and you can see the future at the end for the Ohio State basketball team. Yep, we will uh, talk a lot more about what we've seen from the basketball Buckeyes in the second half of a show, and we'll also make our predictions for the next week because, as we've talked about before, they're in quite a stretch right now where they just played three games this past week. They're going to be playing another three games before our next episode, so lots of basketball stuff to talk about. But want to start this week by talking about something that happened just shortly after we published last week's episode of the podcast, and that was Gene Smith's press conference at the Woody Hayes Athletic Center. I remarked to Griffin, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on this press conference because there was a lot of interesting stuff that came out of that press conference. And without a doubt, the thing that got everyone talking was Gene Smith saying that if Ohio State was selected to host a game in an expanded college football playoff, he would recommend playing indoors at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis rather than at Ohio Stadium. And predictably, that led to a a ton of reactions from Ohio State fans, from Michigan fans, just from college football fans everywhere about this idea that Ohio State would give up a home field advantage and choose to go play indoors rather than playing outside in the cold in the snow, in the winter weather. Gene's rationale being he thinks it would be better for the players to be able to play indoors in a controlled environment rather than playing on a hard surface in the shoe in mid to late December, whenever this game might be, and who knows what the weather is going to be. But Griffin, would it really make sense to give up the opportunity to host a playoff game in the shoe? I think it makes some sense. I certainly, I I see people saying the way that this team is presently constructed, especially when you look at this past season and you point to the game in in Ann Arbor, Dan, the the weather for that game, the performance that Ohio State had, they couldn't run the ball very well. They couldn't stop the run in that kind of smash mouth, stereotypical Big Ten game where, you know, maybe Ryan Day's high-flying pass attack isn't suited best for success in that type of environment. Yeah, if you're looking at that specifically, you're going... Man, I kind of like C.J. Stroud as a California native, of course. Gene even even used Stroud's name when he was talking about that. He said, man, I want to give C.J. Stroud a clean field to be able to, to sling that ball around the field. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think most likely Gene's opinion is one that's shared by Ryan Day. I'm sure that Ryan Day will be asked about this the next time that uh, we meet with Ryan Day, probably on the first day of spring practice. But Yeah, I think on that point, I think you're right. I think the way the team is built right now, the the kind of football that Ohio State plays, it it is built to thrive in better weather. It is built to thrive 
in clean environment, no, no wind, no rain, no snow. I, I think the way that this team is built, you know, it, it is probably uh, better suited to play in an indoor environment. Now, obviously, uh, Michigan fans saw that and immediately started calling Ohio State soft. And I go back to it. Personally, I I know there were some people out there who were trying to make the case that if that Ohio State-Michigan game had been played in Indianapolis the next week, that it would have been a different game. I personally don't see that. To me, you don't suddenly lose the ability to stop the run when you're playing in cold weather. And so to me, Michigan, no matter what the weather conditions were, Michigan was going to be able to out-physical. Now, Maybe if Ohio State hadn't had a flu outbreak the week of a game, maybe it would have been a different story. But to me, I, I don't think the weather had as much of an impact on that game as people act like it did. Now, when Gene says something like this, and literally the last time Ohio State played in bad weather was that game, I totally understand why Michigan fans are making that connection and M- Michigan fans are, are still very much enjoying that win and still very much enjoying the opportunity to talk trash at Ohio state at every opportunity, which is just going to make next year's game or this year's game in, in November, that much more anticipated, that much more hyped because Ohio state fans are going to be anxious for a win more than ever, but just side note there. I, I mean, I don't personally think that I, I don't think that, the weather should be used as an excuse for Ohio state in that game, because playing in cold weather shouldn't make you unable to stop the run. And so to me, that shouldn't be an excuse for Ohio state in that game. Anyway, back to the larger point. I think, I think one thing to remember about gene that I would say about gene is I, I do genuinely believe that gene always takes into consideration what he thinks is best for the athletes when he makes decisions. And so I think that is driving his opinion on this issue. This certainly isn't about money because you're absolutely giving up money. If you don't play the game in your home stadium, if you're paying Lucas oil stadium to host the game for you, you're absolutely giving up money. And so this is generally, I think you can be cynical about any decision an athletic director makes and think, what's the financial element of this? But in this case, I don't see how you could possibly be doing anything but losing money by going to host the game at a neutral site that has less seats than the home stadium that you would assuredly sell out for a college football playoff game. It's not about money here. It's about what he thinks is best for the athletes. And I think there probably is a legitimate case that it is best for the athletes. You think about the scenario in which this would be taking place. We're talking about a a possible expanded 12 team playoff. This would be a first round game where you'd then have to go play three more games. The risk of injury is probably higher if you're playing on a hard surface in bad weather. And I think there is a leg- there's definitely a legitimate reason to want to do that. And a lot of people have made the point about how NFL stadiums winterize their fields, have the heating surfaces underneath the field. I think the problem with that for Ohio State is this is the only scenario in which you'd really be using it because you're not typically playing games in the shoe in December and January. If you're an NFL team, every year you're going to be playing 
home games in December. Anytime you make the playoffs, you could be playing home games in January. In this scenario, the return on investment of heating up the field to to potentially play a, a playoff game in a shoe in December once every several years, it, it probably wouldn't be there. So I think that's part of why that option that some people have speculated about is not an, an option here for Ohio State. All of that said, I I think I still think it is disappointing the idea that the home playoff game in Ohio Stadium might never happen because I think I I like so many people have always you know thought it would be really cool to see that game in December where it's cold and it's snowy and Ohio State's playing an SEC team in the shoe. I, I've always thought that would be a lot of fun to watch and this could all be a moot point anyway because. The college football playoff announced Friday that it will not expand before 2026. There's a good chance Gene won't even be the athletic director by then. So by the time this scenario could actually come into play, whoever's making the decisions at that time could say, hell yeah, we're going to, we're going to play in the shoe. Hell yeah. We're going to have a college football playoff game at home on campus. But for right now, the, you know, the possibility of, of a home game on, on campus appears to be a lot less likely than we might have thought it once was. And to me, although I get Gene's perspective on it, while I think his rationale makes sense, I, I also think it's disappointing. And I understand why a lot of Ohio State fans strongly disagree with the comments that he made. Yeah, because of college football, it's the tradition, right? It's the home environments, hundreds of years of everything built up into these games. And so you're taking what could be a home game at the shoe, all the tradition there, and, and putting a, a cool new spin, the cool new spin of the expanded playoff potential and things like of that nature, and bringing it into that kind of regional, traditional environment there would be such a cool thing, like you just explained. And then preferring to move that to this sterile, neutral environment and and remove from the conditions, it it, it does take something away from it. But like I was saying, I I think if you are to look at it as like a, would would the 2021 Ohio State football team prefer to or have a better chance at winning a game in a vacuum in that environment versus the other one? I think from that perspective, that Gene is definitely onto something there. Yeah. And I think the idea people, a lot of people are making, you know, the point of the home field advantage or whatnot that Ohio State would be giving up. Like, we really don't know how much that home field advantage would help Ohio State. I think there's this idea that Ohio State would be so much more well conditioned to play in the bad weather than an Alabama or a Georgia would. I'm not really that sure that's true because. Just look at Ohio State right now. Like, look at a lot of their star players. You've got CJ Stroud, who's from Southern California. You've got Jackson Smith and Jigba, who's from Texas. You obviously have more guys who are from Northern climates on Ohio State's roster than you do on an Alabama or a Georgia roster. But because they're recruiting nationally now, there's a lot of guys on that team who don't necessarily have a lot of experience playing in cold weather, especially because, again, it's not as if Ohio State is playing games in really bad weather every year. Like in November, it gets cold, but it's not like NFL where you're playing in December and January every year. Typically, the only games you're playing in December and January are 
a Big Ten championship game in an indoor environment and a bowl game in a warm weather climate. And so it's not as if Ohio State like has a ton of experience playing in cold weather, even practicing. Typically, when the weather is bad, they typically practice indoors. And so I'm sure if they were going to be playing a home playoff game of a shoe, they'd be practicing outside every day to prepare for it. But still, I think there would be some home field advantage in that regard. But I think when you you couple the fact that this is a team that's built to win on speed and built to win through the air, and again, granted, who knows if that's still going to be this team's identity come 2026. That's a long way away. A lot can happen between now and then. But if you just think of the current identity of a team, and then you think of the fact that it's a team full of players from all across the nation, and that's true for those Southern teams too. They have a lot of guys who are from the South, but those teams have some guys who are from the North and have played in cold weather too. And so I think there would be some home field advantage to playing out in the cold, but I'm not sure it's as much as some people think it would be. And I think to your point, if it was Wisconsin, it's probably a bigger advantage for them with their kind of identity. For Michigan last year, it's probably more of an advantage for them with their kind of an identity. For a team like Ohio State, it probably wouldn't be as much of an advantage because they are built more to thrive in warm weather football despite playing in a cold weather environment. Now, Dan, you talk about the the fact that this might be a a moot point in general in terms of the short term, because obviously the announcement you alluded to with the CFP, but how disappointed are you in the fact that we're not going to see that expansion happen a little bit sooner? Because I think at a certain point when the ball started uh, getting rolling on this whole process with the announcement about the plans and everything that it seemed inevitable at the time, okay, like this, this is the direction they're starting to move in. But I think since then, we've seen a lot of checkpoints of rolling back the the expectations of, of how quickly this might actually materialize because there are so many moving parts with it all. I I feel like I'm personally, I may, I'm not too broken up about the fact that we're not going to see this expansion super soon because I'm not quite as down on the four team playoff, maybe as some other people are. I think we saw the two best teams in the national championship game this past year. And I'm, I'm also of the, the frame of mind that an eight team playoff or something like that, that I still like that number more, although I don't you know know how it would all work out. But yeah, the 12 team, I wasn't like sold on the 12 team to begin with. So I like that they're, they're going to have more wiggle room to figure things out down the line. And then we're not going to see a, a sweeping change happen as quickly as I guess I thought it might have at some point. Here's the thing about that, though, Griffin. Everybody agrees the 12 team playoff is going to happen. Even the people who have voted against it say they're in favor of it happening. And so to me, we're just delaying the inevitable here. So to me, you know, that's to me where I look at it and say, this isn't so much a debate anymore of should it actually expand to 12? Because it seems like everybody agrees that it should be 12. And by everybody, the people who are making the decisions on this, not necessarily fans, but the people who are making the decisions on this, they seem to all agree that it should be 12. What they can agree on are the smaller details. And so to me, if that's the future, I'd like to see the future start as soon as possible. If, if that's where this thing is, I, I, I think it will happen. Gene Smith seemed very confident it w- will happen. I think it will happen in 2026, which is when the current TV deal runs through 2025. That's why they ultimately made this decision now that it's not going to expand until after this TV deal ends. I think it will happen in 2026. There's a ton of money to be made. There's going to be multiple networks bidding on getting 
that inventory of more playoff games. And so I think they will make it happen in 2026. I think a 12 team playoff will happen in 2026. As I've said before, I do believe playoff expansion is good for the sport. I think it gets more teams involved in the playoff race. I think it's going to keep a lot more people engaged. Whether it actually makes a difference in who wins it all, I don't know. Whether it you know, actually uh, makes things more fair or, or is a better process to determine a champion, I don't know. I still think for the product of college football, it's better. And so ultimately, I, I do believe it's going to happen. It, it's not going to happen before 2026 now. And so for those of you who do like the four-team playoff, you're going to get at least four more years of that. But I, I do think it, it's going to happen. To me, they should have done what they needed to do to just make it happen as soon as possible. If that's the future, stop delaying it. That's obviously not the way things have gone. And of course, if you're an Ohio State fan, look at this past year, for example, look at 2018 you're going to benefit from the expansion as well. While they have gotten into the playoff a lot, not every year, and and once it is expanded, Ohio State's been above that line every year for quite some time. Now, Gene also revealed that the alliance, from a scheduling perspective, is effectively dead. And it sounds like it's been dead since pretty soon after they announced the alliance was going to be a thing. Because when the alliance started, there was this idea that the Big Ten and the ACC and the Pac-12 were all going to work together to schedule annual games against each other. But talking to Gene Smith last Wednesday, he said that they've tabled those talks. And the big reason why they've tabled those talks is because the Big Ten wants to stay at nine conference games. And if the Big Ten stays at nine conference games, there's really no logistical way to play annual games against the ACC and the Pac-12 every year because as we know, schools like Ohio State, they want to have seven home games every year. And so in a nine-game structure where you're playing five and four every year, you're going to have that one home and home that rotates based on whether it's five or four that year. And then you're going to have your two buy games against group of five teams most years where you know, you're paying them to come and play and give you those two extra home games. And the only way that they were going to be able to do that was if the Big Ten and the ACC and the Pac-12 all decided to drop down to eight conference games, which it doesn't sound like they want to do. And I think even in that scenario, as Gene discussed himself, I don't really think that annual games against the ACC and Pac-12 would have been a good thing for Ohio State anyway, because you look at the schedule they've got now lined up for the next 10 years. You've got Notre Dame coming up. You've got Texas. You've got Alabama. You've got Georgia. If Ohio State entered, if the Big Ten entered into agreement where it was playing the ACC and the Pac-12 every year, they really would have had no ability to schedule games against teams from the SEC or Notre Dame or whoever and still be able to have those seven home games every year. And so I think for Ohio State, they want to have the flexibility to schedule the best non-conference games they can possibly get every year. Because if you look at the ACC Pac-12, yeah, the last state was playing Clemson and Oregon every year. That'd be cool. But what if it's if it's all rotating through schools and okay one year you're playing duke and arizona like that might be cool in basketball but not in football and so i think from ohio state's perspective it's 
you know, Ohio State doesn't want to be in some agreement where it's playing the the lower level teams of a Pac-12. It's traveling to go play at Oregon State or uh, Wake Forest or whatever. That wouldn't benefit Ohio State. And so I think all in all, I think keeping the status quo in terms of the nine conference games and the flexibility to schedule whoever they want in non-conference is probably a good thing for Ohio State. And then another thing Gene was talking about, of course, with, with her rumors about the Big Ten potentially moving to a, a divisionless system where they do not have the East and West dividing lines. Obviously, with the uh, leaders and legends divisions, just not that long ago, we, we've obviously seen that the Big Ten isn't afraid to, to shake things up in that regard. And I know you just uh, wrote a piece recently about how potentially going to no divisions in the Big Ten could impact a lot of teams. I think for Ohio State, what you wrote in that piece was about if the divisions didn't exist. Ohio State would really benefit from that situation because they would have been in the championship game just this past year. Yeah, I think it probably would be better for Ohio State and the teams like Michigan and Penn State and Michigan State. We have in those four power teams all concentrated in one division. We've seen those four teams have been the ones who have most consistently been in that college ball playoff conversation. And so I think the idea of removing divisions is one that makes sense. Obviously, you'd have to figure out how work it all out with a schedule if you're staying at nine conference games. I think most likely the idea is that you'd play like three protected games every year and then you'd rotate through all the others and so gene he does seem to be at least somewhat in favor of this because he did make the point that he thinks it'd be good that for players over the course of a four-year career they'd have the opportunity to play at every stadium if you make this work in a way where you're playing every team at least twice in a four-year span one home one on the road And then obviously you'd have a few games that are protected every year. Obviously Ohio state's going to play Michigan every year. I think ideally you'd want to preserve Ohio state Penn state as well, because that's become a quasi rivalry game. And then, you know, the third game it's probably, it might have, I think a lot of people probably like Illinois in that spot. If it was three teams, I think it's maybe more likely to be like a Rutgers or a Maryland or just to have Ohio state in one of those east coast markets but regardless it doesn't sound like any final decisions have been made there but i won't be surprised if they do end up going with the divisionless structure starting next season the idea of the two best teams would play in the big 10 championship game though gene also raised the possibility that he thinks an expanded playoff could mean the end of a big 10 championship game because I think the idea there being that how much longer can you make the schedule? Because if you're talking about having this 12 team playoff where you're going to add first round and a quarterfinal round and then semifinals and a final, how much longer can you stretch the season out? And the possibility that there would be no more Big Ten championship game or any conference championship game, that becomes a more realistic possibility if the playoff end up ends up expanding yeah i've always been opposed to just adding games to the schedule whether it's the nfl schedule or the college schedule the conference championship games because it, it adds a, a cool element and it makes the conference in general feel feel bigger and more prestigious i feel like as well 
But at the same time, that, that was one of the things I didn't like about the 12 game expansion thing was that like the possibility of a team playing whatever, 16, 17 yeah. games. And it's just too much for college athletes. And, and a lot of them are, are trying to get to the next level where they're going to be playing that many games potentially. But at the same time, like these kids do have to, you know, balance school and things like that. And, and just the, the toll that, that takes on your body. I don't love the idea of those guys playing that many games. So if, if you were to eliminate that game, maybe so be it. If we're moving more towards the the national picture and we're taking the emphasis in terms of what the goal for a team is in a season, if, if that's you know, making the 12 team playoff and not winning the conference title, if that's how the priorities end up shaking out there in terms of the, uh, the hierarchy, then yeah, maybe you have to do that because you've got to take a game off of there somewhere theoretically in order to not kill these kids out there with, with that many games. Yeah. I think you do have to make some changes to the schedule in one way or another if the playoff expands to 12 teams. Because I, I agree with you. I think 16, 17 games, that's a lot. There's certainly going to be a, a lot of pushback from coaches if that's something that becomes a thing. I personally, though, my, I, I don't necessarily think that killing conference championship games is the answer to that. I think it's definitely something you have to consider. I personally like conference championship games. I know not everybody does, but I personally do like them. I personally do think they would still have value because it's a clear way to determine your champion. And if we're talking about an expanded playoff system, that's likely going to include some automatic qualifying berths for conference championships. I think having a game where a champion is determined I think is a good thing for that system. To me, I, I liked what the Big Ten did a couple years ago as a temporary thing for the pandemic season with the Champions Week idea. And it didn't work out quite the way they wanted it to because you had teams that weren't able uh, to play due to COVID. But the idea of having that last week of a regular season be, you have you know, one versus one in the division. Again, if you go division list, maybe you change it a little bit. But the idea being the two best teams would play in the Big Ten championship game, and then you go on down the line to give all those teams that game. I think you could make it work to where you make that the last game of a regular season. You have the last week of a regular season, you cut the regular season down by a game, and then in that last week, you have those one versus one, two versus two, whatever matchups in that final replacing what would have been one of your regular season games. So you have to figure out how to make all that work, whether you go division list, how many conference games, whatever. But I, I think to me, you could do that and, and get rid of one of the, one of the big 10 games that's being played now as a regular season game. But ultimately every team would still have the opportunity to play that full slate of big 10 games. It was just that the, the big 10 championship game, wouldn't mean playing an extra game for the two teams that are in it. So I think that's a model that should be considered. I thought Stuart Mandel had a piece on the athletic a few weeks ago that I thought was really good about some of the steps that should be taken in college football playoff expansion. So that the most important games aren't being overshadowed by the NFL. And for one suggestion he made, which I agree with is moving the season back. Is moving the start of a season up to, to late August, what's currently week zero, make that week one, start the season earlier. Because 
I definitely don't think the right move here, if you expand the playoff, is to just tack it on to what's already going. Because now you're talking about playing into late January. That's really going to affect guys who are uh, going to the NFL draft and going into the NFL draft process. So I don't think you want to. I don't think you want to push things to where the season ends later than it already does. I think you've got to move up the regular season, have the regular season end earlier so that you can start the playoff earlier. Ideally, I don't think you want to be starting that playoff any later than early December. And so to me, I think you've got to move the start of a season up and then you've got to contract things in some way. I think the idea of playing 13 games for a conference championship game and then potentially playing three or four playoff games I think that is too much. So I think you you probably have to either cut the regular season by a game or you have to just get rid of the conference championship games. Yeah, and I really like that the idea of, you know, adopting that the 2020 uh, COVID scheduling thing with the Big 10 there with the the final week of the the regular season. Um it's just interesting though because of course when the four team playoff the first year of the four team playoff that was the whole debate was Ohio State versus Baylor in the outright, you know, conference championship game and and that creating that for the Big 12 and whatnot. And now we're looking at if they expand things further, do they have to take that now away when it was a such a deciding factor for teams getting into the playoff in the first place? It just it's an interesting cycle there. But Dan, Gene, also a lot of NIL talk, which that's something that we definitely all thought we would be getting with Gene in, in that press conference, although we didn't know everything, what he would be talking about that day. Gene, he, he's been steadfast that he would like to see there be federal legislation when it comes to NIL, because he doesn't think that necessarily the, the NCAA should be the, the be all end all when it comes to that. He didn't seem completely comfortable when it came to, to some of the NIL stuff, because of course, at, at a certain point, Gene was, was talking about the warning signs of the bad third party actors and whatnot in the initial kind of NIL conversations. Of course, he might've come around on some of that as well. But Dan, what do you make of his takes on NIL? And do you think that we will see more regulation coming in that space here? I'm not optimistic that federal legislation is going to be coming anytime soon, because without getting into politics, I think uh, the idea of really getting you know anything accomplished through Congress these days can be challenging. And I think they have a lot of bigger, more important issues to deal with, quite frankly, than name, image, and likeness benefits in college sports. And so I'm not optimistic that federal legislation is going to come anytime soon. It does seem like the NCAA maybe wants to get more involved now. The NCAA put out an announcement late Friday afternoon that it is going to review NIL policies and could potentially recommend some changes this summer. And I, I think there is a lot of concern among college athletics leaders, Gene Smith included, about how NIL deals are being used as recruiting inducements. We're seeing these collectives popping up all over the country where wealthy donors are are funding these NIL deals, which I don't really even know what services the players are really providing in these deals, but it's basically a way to, to funnel money to players and to convince recruits to come to these schools. But to me, it's like the cat's out of a bag. Gene made the point toward the end of that press conference when he was asked if this was the right time for the NIL. And he said, we're way too late because really the only reason this happened is because 
state laws started getting passed for NIL to be legal, to supersede the NCAA. And so the NCAA had no choice but to allow it in order to avoid running afoul of state laws. But Gene made the point, like the NCAA never acts on the offensive or always on the defensive. And I think now that you're on the defensive and you're reacting, I I think it's going to be really hard for the NCAA to suddenly be able to enact regulations and stop what's already happening. And I I certainly think there's going to be a push here for more regulation, but I think it's going to be really difficult when you're trying to manage around all these different state laws that are all different and all these different pressure groups from outside where I think any effort to start restricting NIL again is going to be met with lawsuits and different people challenging it. And so I think they're in a tough spot trying to regulate this. I think they are going to try, but to me, I think it's probably more likely that for at least the immediate future, that these NIL collectives are going to keep popping up all over the place and they are going to be used as recruiting inducements. And for Ohio State, that puts it in a tough spot because Ohio State's been pretty clear from the beginning of this thing that they don't want to get into that space. They don't really want to be involved in that recruiting inducement space. But at the same time, there's an acknowledgement from Gene, there's an acknowledgement from others at Ohio State that we have to keep up with what everybody else is doing. Ohio State, it can't just sit on its hands if you have you know other schools, whether it's Tennessee or Texas A&M, whoever's doing it, funneling all these money to players. Ohio State can't just allow that to happen and do nothing. And so now I think Ohio State has to try to walk this fine line of playing by the rules and staying within the rules, but also not falling behind with what other schools are doing. So it's a, it's a very delicate balance to walk. And part of that's because nobody really even knows yet, like what's allowed and what isn't because there's so many different state laws and because the NCAA hasn't put clear policies into place. But I think that's, to me, is the more interesting question right now is just how is Ohio State going to respond to this? Because it it is going to hurt Ohio State if Ohio State doesn't have these kind of systems in place while other schools do. It it just is because you're going to have players who are going to, you know, look and go, oh, I can go to this school and immediately start getting a paycheck. And at Ohio State, I, I don't necessarily have that. So I think. Ohio State is already taking steps toward opening the door. Again, Ohio State isn't going to outright start paying recruits. That's still not allowed. But I think Ohio State does realize that it needs to open the door to these collectives that might want to come in and fund these deals for Ohio State players. Because if they don't, they're going to fall behind the other schools that do have those systems in place. And another big topic with Gene when we had that press conference was, of course, the Ryan Day contract situation, which we, of course, heard the the whispers at some point of potential NFL opportunities. The Chicago Bears was thrown out there at some point. Ryan Day, of course, in subsequent press conferences said, I'm not going to the NFL. I love being in Ohio State. It's the best place to coach, which, of course, a lot of these conversations were brought up with all the, the high profile coaching mobility that's been going on in college football since the end of the regular season. We also see other coaches in the Big Ten who Ryan Day has beaten 
like Mel Tucker, James Franklin, but getting huge extensions with their respective programs. Jim Harbaugh just got an extension recently. So of course the question was asked, where are you with that contract extension situation with, with Coach Day? And of course it's interesting because Ryan Day's had so much success, but at the same time, he's also coming off of a year in which he just lost to Michigan for the first time in, in a decade. So it creates this interesting dynamic on both sides there. And, and the most interesting thing about what Gene said was that he hadn't talked about the contract at all with Ryan Day yet, which it's hard to parse. Okay, how much do we really buy that he hasn't had any conversations or hasn't thought about it whatsoever, hasn't looked around at any numbers? Gene Smith said he didn't feel a sense of urgency to delve into that right away. Then he's going to do some research, look at everything, bring in the president of Ohio State and sit down with Ryan Day and have all the, the necessary conversations but Dan, it's really just a matter of time before Day gets a new contract. Yeah, I think he absolutely will get a new contract. I don't think this has anything to do with a disappointment over losing to Michigan or anything like that. I think it's a matter of, I think it is true what Eugene said, that their focus over the last couple of months has been filling out his staff. And Ryan Day made it clear at his last press conference, he thanked Gene for allowing him to go out and give Jim Knowles a $1.9 million contract, giving him the freedom to go out and get the coaches he felt that he needed to fix the defense, to upgrade the staff. And Gene and the university have signed off on all those moves that he's wanted to make. And I think that's been the priority for Ryan Day and for Ohio State is to build the best staff possible. And I think Ryan Day appreciates the fact that Ohio State you know, is allowing him to do that, that Ohio State's not saying no we have to stay within this budget. Ohio State saying, no, go spend the money you need to spend in order to build the best coaching staff possible. So I think that's been the priority on both sides over Ryan Day getting a new contract for himself. But I do believe it is only a matter of time before that con new contract will come. I mean, we've seen Mel Tucker, James Franklin, now Jim Harbaugh all get contract extensions at their schools. I think, I don't think anybody's going to argue that Ryan Day does not deserve an, an extension and a raise if all those coaches are getting extensions that potentially pay them more than what Ryan Day is making. And so I, I do think in time, I don't know when, but I do think in time, a new contract will come. Gene Smith indicated that he doesn't feel a sense of urgency. It doesn't seem as though Ryan Day's going into Gene's office and saying, pay me now or I'm out of here. I, I know that there's also the side of his conversation of like, how real is the NFL interest in Ryan Day? And we don't have a clear answer. on. I do believe there were NFL teams that were interested in Ryan Day. Like I know like anytime this comes up, I always hear from a lot of Michigan fans who go, well, that's because nobody in the NFL wants Ryan Day. I think teams in the NFL want Ryan Day. I, I don't think Ryan Day wants to go to the NFL right now. <laughs> I do think that in time, you, you, you've got to pay Ryan Day in, in accordance with where he belongs in the market to, to keep him happy and keep him around. But I think for right now, you know, the priority really has been building that staff, preparing to accomplish those goals. Because Ryan Day knows if he really wants that really big contract, he's got to win a national championship. He's got to accomplish those bigger goals that they didn't accomplish last season. And so I think Ryan Day's primary focus is on improving the team and, and accomplishing those goals this year. And I think even if they haven't talked contract, I think Gene has surely made it clear to Ryan that if you go out there and, and accomplish the goals that are set out for you, we're going to take care of you. Dan, we could probably continue to unpack everything that Gene talked about in that hour-long press conference we had last week. But let's talk some Ohio State hoops 
because things are heating up now in the final stretch of the regular season. Like you mentioned earlier, Ohio State split its last two pair games. That seems to be the trend for Ohio State as of late in recent weeks. They'll win one, maybe win two, but lose one after that. They still haven't lost two games in a row all season, which is an accomplishment in itself. But Ohio State had been riding that 11-game home win streak, which was rather impressive. It tied its longest in in seven years. I think if they would have won against Iowa, that would have made its uh, tie for its longest in eight years. But Iowa got the better of Ohio State. And and I had been saying Keegan Murray and those guys at Iowa, the highest scoring offense in the Big Ten, could make that game interesting. And that's what happened because it it was a good game in the first half. It was a very close game, high scoring at first as well. But Ohio State fell off the, the wagon on that one. Keegan Murray, I think, had 20 points in the first half. He didn't have to have his biggest second half. But Iowa ended up running away with it. The Buckeyes subsequently dropped a number 22 in the AP poll on Monday, which is its lowest rank since I think the first week of December when they were unranked at the end of of November and then got back into things and started to climb from there. But Ohio State bounces back with a win over Indiana on Monday, Indiana being a team that beat Ohio State by 15 points back at the beginning of January and really dominated in the paint in that game in Bloomington. But Ohio State got to play Indiana on a four-game losing skid, and they had some injuries in there. They got the win in overtime, Dan, but it wasn't as straightforward as just they got a win over Indiana. There was a lot of twists and turns in that game, and and things could have probably been a a bit disastrous had Ohio State not pulled that one out in the end. Yeah, there would be a lot of negative vibes in the Ohio State fan base right now if Ohio State had lost that Indiana game because they were already bubbling up uh, certainly on saturday uh, you started seeing the fire holtman tweets that seemed to pop up after every loss and i think if they had lost that game to indiana back to back at home again they went cold on the second half against iowa they did for most of the second half again against indiana so i think that would have been a troubling trend and there would have been a lot of negative vibes coming out of that game if, if ohio state had lost to indiana but the ohio state won that game ohio state when they really needed to in those last couple minutes of regulation and in overtime They stepped up, they finished strong, they found a way to win. And those are the kind of games you have to win this time of year. We've seen it time and time again in in February and March. You're going to be in a lot of these tight games. We know with this team, they're going to be in a lot of these tight games. And you have to find a way to win them. And so that's the most important thing is ultimately finding a way to win. I think the thing about college basketball, and I think it gets heightened in the Ohio State fan base because I think because most Ohio State fans are primary football fans and secondary basketball fans that I think especially like this time of year when the primary football fans are paying more attention to basketball than maybe they are in November and December. Uh, You know, I think in football, you end up in this space where every game is a referendum on the program and how good the team is. And then they apply that same logic to basketball. And you can't make every game in college basketball a referendum on how good the coach is. That's just not really how things work in college basketball. So I get the frustration that Ohio State fans have at, at times with the team, but I also think it's important to keep in contact. Like you said, this team still hasn't lost back-to-back games all year. So we've seen Holtman's teams have some slumps in the past in January or February. That hasn't happened this year. This team has not had a sustained slump at all. It's fair to say it's like a little bit fair to say that the team is inconsistent, but not really. They're 17 and seven overall. They're 10 and five in conference play. 
They're fourth in the Big Ten standings right now. So I think all in all, this team is having a good season. Now, I also get the anxiety of, oh, are we going to lose in the first round in March again? Like, it's possible. I think this is certainly a team you look at and you go, they're capable of making a deep run in the tournament and they're capable of getting bounced in the first round. It depends on who shows up that day. But that's also true for most teams in college basketball. There's Mm. just not, there's not, especially this year, really not many teams at all in college basketball this year that are, are dominant teams. And that's just the way it goes. And so I think it's important to keep that context in mind. I know a lot of Ohio State basketball fans want to see Ohio State basketball become a team that dominates most games the way Ohio State football does. But that's not really a realistic expectation for Ohio State basketball right now. And so I think all in all, I think this team is having a good season. You know, the the Iowa loss, that was not a good performance. But again, it was their first loss at home all year. We predicted it. Like, we thought that was something that could happen. I didn't see the game playing out the way it did in terms of the fact that Iowa played great defense in the second half and Ohio State couldn't score. I thought if they lost, it was going to be more like a 95 to 88 kind of game where Iowa's offense just went off. So it was not the kind of game I expected, but... They were bound to lose a home game at some point. Losses happen. And especially right now in the stretch they're in right now, where they're playing so many games, two or three days apart from one another, it's really hard to win every game when you're playing that kind of stretch. And so I I think overall, I'm not trying to be an over-the-top Holtman defender here. I think the questions that tend to come his way, I think at least some of them are fair, but I also think that every time the team loses shouldn't be a referendum on Ohio State basketball. I think it should be understood that in in the grind of Big Ten play, some losses are going to happen. I think the fact that this team has avoided back-to-back losses and they have not allowed one loss to snowball into a slump, I think that's a very encouraging sign for this team, especially as it gets into these next few weeks in the games that it really has to win. And then let's talk about one of the biggest takeaways from Ohio State here recently, which of course is the continued emergence and really dominance. If you're talking about the last game from Malachi Brandon, because he had 27 points against Indiana in the overtime win. And not only did he do the scoring, Dan, he also dished to EJ Liddell on the, for the game tying dunk with six seconds left in regulation that sent it into overtime, which was just a great play by him. And I, I wrote in a piece yesterday, like Malachi Branham was so good that somehow on the last possession of regulation, Indiana completely forgot about Ohio State's best player and All-American candidate, EJ Liddell, who slipped behind the defense to get completely wide open. That's how good Malachi Branham was in that game. The last two games, he shot nine for 13 from the field in both of those games. He had 22 against Iowa as well. And then let me throw some more numbers at you here because... In the last 14 games, and this is starting with the Nebraska game, where, of course, he had 35 points, he's averaging 15.8 points per game for Ohio State, shooting 50% from three-point range and shooting 52% from the field. He's had games where he's been up and down. He had a a few single-digit scoring performances in there. But when you average that all out the last 14 games, he's been on a completely different level ever since that breakout performance. And if he can you know, continue at that pace, that's a really interesting prospect for this Ohio State team, and yet he's he clearly is the, the number two for Ohio State right now. And on a night when EJ Liddell has a quiet night, we've seen him be capable of being now the number one option for this team. 
yeah, I think we've maybe been a little bit hesitant to say that Malachi is like the second star on his team. I think at this point now, he clearly is a top two player on his team. He's shown that he can take over a game uh, like he did last night. And I think Malachi has elevated his game consistently over the course of a season. Any notion of a freshman wall has been broken down here over these last couple of games. And I mean, that's a really important thing for Ohio State because Holtman said it himself after the Iowa game. He said, it, it can't just be EJ. We can't, it, it can't just be EJ every night. We can't be the EJ Lagell show. We need other guys to step up. And I think at least now in Malachi, you feel like you've got that second guy. Again, at times he's even been the best player out there. I think even better than EJ. So I think you, you feel like you have two stars right now in, in those two guys. I think there's still the question of who else can you rely on beside those two on a night-to-night basis? Do you have that third score you can really count on? One guy I think we've seen some really steady improvement from is Eugene Brown, and he actually was the number three scorer against Indiana, had 10 points in that game. He seems like he keeps getting better, and so he's a guy that I think is becoming a really important player for them. But I still don't think this team has that clear-cut third guy that they know they can count on night in and night out. We've seen Zed Key have good games. We've also seen him have quieter games. Kyle Young, he's he's always consistent from an effort standpoint, but his scoring out hasn't been consistent. Michi, it seems like Michi's still working his way back into a flow after missing time with multiple injuries. Cedric Russell is another guy that we've seen him have some big games and we've seen him have some games where he hasn't really done anything. Justin Arns is a guy who I think was supposed to play a bigger role in this team. And we've seen his role dissipate here over, over you know, the course of a season. You know, Jamari Wheeler, we've seen him have some big moments. We've also seen some issues here in the last couple of games where he picks up a couple early fouls and then he isn't able to play that much. And I just think that's going to, we talked about it last week, I believe. I think, again, I think that is going to be a big part of measuring this team's ceiling in March is they have to be able to count on EJ. They have to be able to count on Malachi, but then are they going to get enough from the supporting cast? With EJ and Malachi, if you get enough from the supporting cast, you're capable of beating just about anybody. But if you don't, that's where you become capable of getting beat by just about anybody. Yeah, because they have so many pieces. We've talked about it. All these old experienced guys with grad transfers and and guys that are just seniors and whatnot. But the thing is, you wish you had one other guy that was capable of the the consistent production there. Like, for example, Zed Key for a while was averaging double-digit scoring. Now he's proven to be not reliable to give you 10 a night, really, because he just has a lot of nights where he ends up going quiet. Kyle Young, same type of deal. He was averaging double digits for, for some point in the season. He's not doing that anymore. And so it's just who can be that kind of third option because there doesn't seem to be a clear one right now. And of course, you got to bring the caveat up of just assuming was on the team like he was supposed to be not on the team. But if he wasn't injured, then, you know, what dimension could that give this team? But at this point, we're probably not going to ever find that out. But although he, I guess he could play at some point down the stretch, but just seems dwindling. In yeah, the stretch there. is getting a little bit small here. Yeah, yeah. But then looking ahead to the next few games for Ohio State is going to go on the road to Illinois, who I believe is number 12 in the country right now, if I'm not mistaken. Then a couple of games against Maryland in Nebraska. I'm going to definitely assume that Ohio State's going to be favored to lose the game against Illinois. They should definitely, though, I believe, get those other two against Maryland and Nebraska. Yeah, I'm going to go chalk with my predictions on this one. I'm going to say they go two and one. I'm going to say they lose to Illinois. And they beat both Maryland and Nebraska. And that's going to be a tough game 
in Champaign on Thursday against Kofi Coburn and and Illinois. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for chalk on this one. That would be a huge win if they can go into Illinois and win on the road. But I think it's gonna be a tough one. But I, I do think they, you know, get the job done uh, against Maryland on the road, and and they certainly should get the job done against Nebraska. Let's get into some recruiting talk here because Ohio State landed a big target for them in the 2023 class and Luke Montgomery. And Dan, why was that such a, a big get for Ohio State and specifically Justin Fry, the new? Of course, Ohio State offensive line coach. Luke Montgomery are the kind of prospects you have to get when you're Ohio State. A, a top 50 guy in the class from the state of Ohio, grew up an Ohio State fan. That's the first part. The second part is, Garrick's written about this a lot, the biggest need for Ohio State going into the 2023 class is offensive tackle because you look ahead to next year, the possibility that both Paris Johnson and Dewan Jones could be in the NFL draft if you lose both of them after this season, that offensive tackle position becomes a big question mark because of the fact that they haven't had any real top-notch recruits at that tackle position in the last couple of years. They have some four-star guys, some three-star guys who are developing, and it's certainly possible that those guys could develop into starting caliber players. But there's nobody that you can really look at after Paris and DeWan and say, that guy's a sure thing to be Ohio State's next star tackle. And so it's really important for Ohio State to build up that depth at at the offensive tackle position in this class. That's a big reason why Justin Fry was hired to replace Greg Stadrawa, because the recruiting hadn't been where it should have been on the offensive line the past few years. And so Ohio State's looking for Justin Fry to elevate that. So for him to come in and really a month into his tenure at Ohio State, land the most important target in Luke Montgomery, that's a massive win for Ohio State. And I still think that they have a real shot at land one or two more top-notch offensive tackles in this class. I think Chase Besantis from New Jersey is a guy that I think they're in a good spot with. Samson Okanlola from Massachusetts is another guy that they seem to be in the hunt for. Peyton Kirkland from Florida, probably going to pronounce this wrong. Olaus Alanen, who's originally from Finland and, and now plays in Connecticut. Those are all guys who are highly touted tackles in this class as well that Ohio State is in the race for and seems to be in at least a decent spot for all of those guys. And so if Ohio State can land one or even two more of those guys to pair with Montgomery in this class, that would be a fantastic start for Justin Fry. Back in the world of college hoops for a second, Dan, because there was some some craziness popping off in the Big Ten Conference, of course, between the head coaches of Michigan and Wisconsin when Juwan Howard did not take kindly to a timeout called by Greg Gard in the final waning seconds of a game that was already over for all intents and purposes. Juwan Howard, in the handshake line after the game, said, I'll remember that. Greg Gard grabs his arm. Juwan Howard gets in his face, grabs a hold of his shirt, and a melee basically ensues there. And Juwan Howard ends up throwing. Was it a punch? Was it a mush? Was it a was it an open hand slap? Those are all things that are still being discussed online as we speak, probably. And we all wondered what 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 the, what is the suspension going to be? Because it wasn't even really an isolated incident. Because we've we've actually seen Juwan Howard have multiple kind of meltdowns. I was there last year in Indianapolis for the Big Ten tournament when Juwan Howard went you know, off on Mark Turgeon, the Maryland, former Maryland head coach, and he got pushed halfway off the court by his whoever was holding him back, his assistants. 
Then he circles, he comes back, he runs back into the scene to try to start some more stuff, but he ends up getting suspended here for the, for the rest of the regular season for Michigan, which we're almost at the end of the regular season. So it's not the stiffest punishment in the world. I think it's, I think that's a reasonable punishment though, because you could make an argument that should Greg Gard have grabbed him like he did and tempers are flaring. I'm not going to come down as hard with the gavel on Jawan Howard as maybe a lot of Ohio state fans might probably because I also find it so entertaining that I kind of, I'm so entertained by the fact that it happened in the first place that I don't want to punish him too hard for it. So I think the punishment fits the crime, Dan, what, what say you? Yeah, I think it does too. I think it's, I think it's reasonable for the rest of a regular season, five games to be suspended for. I think certainly because of the other incident you mentioned, he's got two strikes against him now. So I think if you're Michigan, you've got to lay it out to him that this is it. No more tolerance. If this happens again, you're gone to me. That'd be a third strike and, and you've got to move on at that point. I think, you know, it, 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 it's unacceptable for a head coach to act in that way, to, to swing at an assistant coach, even if he was provoked to swing at an opposing team's coach at, in the handshake line and, and set off a brawl as the head coach, you have to be able to control your emotions better than that. It's one thing if a player gets in a fight and starts a brawl. It's another thing if you're the head coach. That's a poor example to set for your team. And we're not just saying that because Michigan. We're saying that because that would be true for any coach. And so I think it is a reasonable punishment. I, I know there's some people saying he should be fired right now. I don't. I, I think this is a reasonable punishment. I think the suspension for five games with obviously making it clear to him that this can't happen again because it's not acceptable behavior for a head coach to act in that manner. And certainly it's something that Jawan's going to have to learn from. Cause like you said, this isn't the first time that this has happened. And we know emotions run hot on the court. I know that he didn't like the timeout that was called or whatever, but you just have to anybody, not just a basketball coach, any adult in a position of power, you have to be able to, handle your emotions better than than that when you don't like the way things are going and i think reasonable punishment time to move forward but obviously if it happens again then i think that could be the end of his tenure at michigan could you imagine a michigan player got like seriously hurt in an even bigger brawl in that situation because if you're the head coach you know your players are going to come in there too and if someone would have gotten seriously hurt then i think we'd probably be having an even uh, different conversation about this let's be glad of it, none of that happened, and it would be fun if we were to see a Michigan Wisconsin game in the Big Ten tournament. I will say that. Oh, absolutely! And I've I've been saying this, and I don't actually want to see anyone get hurt or punches be thrown. But Juwan, you couldn't have saved that for the shot, man. That would have given us so much uh, good material. Oh, that would <laughs> that would have been epic if it had happened against Ohio State. But Juwan will not be at the shot. The Phil Martelli, the former St. Joe's coach, will be the acting head coach for that game as he will now assume head coaching duties for the final five games of a regular season, including that game between Michigan and Ohio State on March 6th, which we will look ahead to next week because when we come back for next week's episode of RealPod Wednesdays, we will be in the final week of the Ohio State basketball regular season. And we're going to have a lot else to talk about next week too. I'll be heading to Indianapolis for the NFL scouting combine next week. We will preview that for the seven Buckeyes that will be there. And we'll also start previewing spring football. We're going to be getting into it by the end of next week. And we will definitely start to look ahead uh, to the spring football season as well on next week's show. We hope you'll tune in for that. Thanks for joining us this week and enjoy the rest of your week.